0: Chapter Twelve of The Mystery of Thirty One New Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosie. The Mystery of Thirty One New Inn by R. Austin Freeman. Chapter Twelve The Portrait. The state of mind which Thorndyke had advised me to cultivate was one that did not come easily however much i endeavoured to shuffle the facts of the blackmore case there was one which inevitably turned up on the top of the pack the circumstances surrounding the execution of geoffrey blackmore's will intruded into all my cogitations on the subject with hopeless persistency that scene in the porter's lodge was to me what king charles's head was to poor mr dick in the midst of my praiseworthy efforts to construct some intelligible scheme of the case it would make its appearance and reduce my mind to instant chaos for the next few days thorndyke was very much occupied with one or two civil cases which kept him in court during the whole of the sitting and when he came home he seemed indisposed to talk on professional topics meanwhile polton worked steadily at the photographs of the signatures and with a view to gaining experience i assisted him and watched his methods in the present case the signatures were enlarged from their original dimensions rather less than an inch and a half in length to a length of four and a half inches which rendered all the little peculiarities of the handwriting surprisingly distinct and conspicuous each signature was eventually mounted on a slip of card bearing a number and the date of the check from which it was taken so that it was possible to place any two signatures together for comparison I looked over the whole series and very carefully compared those which showed any differences but without discovering anything more than might have been expected in view of mr britton's statement there were some trifling variations but they were all very much alike and no one could doubt on looking at them that they were all written by the same hand as this however was apparently not in dispute it furnished no new information thorndyke's object for i felt certain that he had something definite in his mind must be to test something apart from the genuineness of the signatures but what could that something be i dared not ask him for questions of that kind were anathema so there was nothing for it but to lie low and see what he would do with the photographs the whole series was finished on the fourth morning after my adventure at sloane square and the pack of cards was duly delivered by polton when he brought in the breakfast tray thorndyke took up the pack somewhat with the air of a whist player and as he ran through them i noticed that the number had increased from twenty-three to twenty-four the additional one thorndyke explained is the signature to the first will which was in marchmont's possession i have added it to the collection as it carries us back to an earlier date the signature of the second will presumably resemble those of the checks drawn about the same date but that is not material or if it should become so we could claim to examine the second will. He laid the cards out on the table in the order of their dates, and slowly ran his eye down the series. I watched him closely, and ventured presently to ask, ''Do you agree with Mr. Britton as to the general identity of character in the whole set of signatures?'' ''Yes,'' he replied, ''I should certainly have put them down as being all the signatures of one person. The variations are very slight,'' The later signatures are a little stiffer, a little more shaky and indistinct, and the B's and K's are both appreciably different from those in the earlier ones, but there is another fact which emerges when the whole series is seen together, and it is so striking and significant a fact, that I am astonished at its not having been remarked on by Mr. Britton. Indeed, said I, stooping to examine the photographs with fresh interest, what is that? It is a very simple fact and very obvious, but yet, as I have said, very significant. Look carefully at number one, which is the signature of the first will, dated three years ago, and compare it with number three, dated the eighteenth of September last year. "'They look to me identical,' said I, after a careful comparison. "'So they do to me,' said Thorndyke. "'Neither of them shows the change that occurred later.' but if you look at number two, dated the 16th of September, you will see that it is in the later style. So is number four, dated the 23rd of September, but numbers five and six, both at the beginning of October, are in the earlier style, like the signature of the will. Thereafter, all the signatures are in the new style, but if you compare number two, dated the 16th of September, with number 24, dated the 14th of March of this year, the day of Geoffrey's death, you see that they exhibit no difference. Both are in the later style, but the last shows no greater change than the first. Don't you consider these facts very striking and significant?' I reflected a few moments, trying to make out the deep significance to which Thorndyke was directing my attention, and not succeeding very triumphantly. "'You mean,' I said, "'that the occasional reversions to the earlier form convey some material suggestion?' yes but more than that what we learn from an inspection of this series is this that there was a change in the character of the signature a very slight change but quite recognizable now that change was not gradual or insidious nor was it progressive it occurred at a certain definite time at first there were one or two reversions to the earlier form but after number six the new style continued to the end and you notice that it continued without any increase in the change and without any variation. There are no intermediate forms. Some of the signatures are in the old style and some in the new, but there are none that are half and half. So that, to repeat, we have here two types of signature, very much alike but distinguishable. They alternate but do not merge into one another to produce intermediate forms the change occurs abruptly but shows no tendency to increase as time goes on it is not a progressive change what do you make of that jervis it is very remarkable i said poring over the cards to verify thorndyke's statements i don't quite know what to make of it if the circumstances admitted of the idea of forgery one would suspect the genuineness of some of the signatures but they don't at any rate in the case of the later will to say nothing of mr Britton's opinion on the signatures still said thorndyke there must be some explanation of the change in the character of the signatures and that explanation cannot be the failing eyesight of the writer for that is a gradually progressive and continuous condition whereas the change in the writing is abrupt and intermittent i considered thorndyke's remark for a few moments and then alight though not a very brilliant one seemed to break on me i think i see what you are driving at said i you mean that the change in the writing must be associated with some new condition affecting the writer and that that condition existed intermittently thorndyke nodded approvingly and i continued the only intermittent condition that we know of is the effect of opium so that we might consider the clearer signatures to have been made when geoffrey was in his normal state AND THE LESS DISTINCT ONES AFTER A BOUT OF OPIUM SMOKING. THAT IS PERFECTLY SOUND REASONING, SAID THORNDYKE. WHAT FURTHER CONCLUSION DOES IT LEAD TO? IT SUGGESTS THAT THE OPIUM HABIT HAD BEEN ONLY RECENTLY ACQUIRED, SINCE THE CHANGE WAS NOTICED ONLY ABOUT THE TIME HE WENT TO LIVE AT NEW INN, AND SINCE THE CHANGE IN THE WRITING IS AT FIRST INTERMITTENT AND THEN CONTINUOUS, WE MAY INFER THAT THE OPIUM SMOKING WAS AT FIRST OCCASIONAL, AND LATER BECAME A CONFIRMED HABIT. "'Quite a reasonable conclusion, and very clearly stated,' said Thorndyke. "'I don't say that I entirely agree with you, "'or that you have exhausted the information that these signatures offer, "'but you have started in the right direction.' "'I may be on the right road,' I said gloomily, "'but I am stuck fast in one place, and I see no chance of getting any further. "'But you have a quantity of data,' said Thorndyke. "'You have all the facts that I had to start with, from which i constructed the hypothesis that i am now busily engaged in verifying i have a few more data now for as money makes money so knowledge begets knowledge and i put my original capital out to interest shall we tabulate the facts that are in our joint possession and see what they suggest i grasped eagerly at the offer though i had conned over my notes again and again thorndyke produced a slip of paper from a drawer and uncapping his fountain pen Proceeded to write down the leading facts, reading each aloud as soon as it was written. 1. The second will was unnecessary since it contained no new matter, expressed no new intentions, and met no new conditions, and the first will was quite clear and efficient. 2. The evident intention of the testator was to leave the bulk of his property to Stephen Blackmore. 3. The second will did not, under existing circumstances, give effect to this intention whereas the first will did four the signature of the second will differs slightly from that of the first and also from what had hitherto been the testator's ordinary signature and now we come to a very curious group of dates which i will advise you to consider with great attention five mrs wilson made her will at the beginning of september last year without acquainting Geoffrey blackmore who seems to have been aware of the existence of this will 6. His own second will was dated the 12th of November of last year. 7. Mrs. Wilson died of cancer on the 12th of March this present year. 8. Jeffrey Blackmore was last seen alive on the 14th of March. 9. His body was discovered on the 15th of March. 10. The change in the character of his signature began about September last year, and became permanent after the middle of October. You will find that collection of facts repay careful study, Jervis, especially when considered in relation to the further data. 11. That we found in Blackmore's chambers a framed inscription of large size, hung upside down, together with what appeared to be the remains of a watch-glass and a box of staring candles and some other objects he passed the paper to me and i pored over it intently focusing my attention on the various items with all the power of my will but struggle as i would no general conclusion could be made to emerge from the mass of apparently disconnected facts well thorndyke said presently after watching with grave interest my unavailing efforts what do you make of it nothing i exclaimed desperately slapping the paper down on the table of course i can see that there are some queer coincidences but how do they bear on the case i understand that you want to upset this will which we know to have been signed without compulsion or even suggestion in the presence of two respectable men who have sworn to the identity of the document that is your object i believe certainly it is then i am hanged if i see how you are going to do it not i should say by offering a group of vague coincidences that would muddle any brain but your own Thorndyke chuckled softly, but pursued the subject no farther. "'Put that paper in your file with your other notes,' he said, "'and think it over at your leisure. "'And now I want a little help from you. "'Have you a good memory for faces?' Fairly good, I think. Why?' "'Because I have a photograph of a man whom I think you may have met. "'Just look at it and tell me if you remember the face.' He drew a cabinet-sized photograph from an envelope that had come by the morning's post and handed it to me. "'I have certainly seen this face somewhere,' said I, taking the portrait over to the window to examine it more thoroughly, "'but I can't, at the moment, remember where.' "'Try,' said Thorndyke, "'if you have seen the face before you shall be able to recall the person.' I looked intently at the photograph, and the more I looked— the more familiar did the face appear. Suddenly the identity of the man flashed into my mind, and I exclaimed in astonishment, It can't be that poor creature at Kennington, Mr. Graves. I think it can, replied Thorndyke. and I think it is. But could you swear to the identity in a court of law? It is my firm conviction that the photograph is that of Mr. Graves. I would swear to that no man ought to swear to more said thorndyke identification is always a matter of opinion or belief the man who will swear unconditionally to identify from memory only is a man whose evidence should be discredited i think your sworn testimony would be sufficient it is needless to say that the production of this photograph filled me with amazement and curiosity as to how thorndyke had obtained it but as he replaced it impassively in its envelope without volunteering any explanation i felt that i could not question him directly nevertheless i ventured to approach the subject in an indirect manner did you get any information from those darmstadt people i asked schnitzler yes i learned through the medium of an official acquaintance that dr h weiss was a stranger to them that they knew nothing about him excepting that he had ordered from them and had been supplied with a hundred grams of pure hydrochlorate of morphine all at once no in separate parcels of twenty-five grams each is that all you know about vice it is all that i actually know but it is not all that i suspect on very substantial grounds by the way what did you think of the coachman i don't know that i thought very much about him why you never suspected that he and vice were one and the same person no how could they be they weren't in the least alike and one was a scotchman and the other a german but perhaps you know that they were the same i only know what you have told me but considering that you never saw them together that the coachman was never available for messages or assistance when vice was with you that vice always made his appearance some time after you arrived and disappeared some time before you left it has seemed to me that they might have been the same person i should say it was impossible they were so very different in appearance but supposing that they were the same would the fact be of any importance it would mean that we could save ourselves the trouble of looking for the coachman and it would suggest some inferences and it would suggest some inferences which will occur to you if you think the matter over but being only a speculative opinion at present it would not be safe to infer very much from it "'You have rather taken me by surprise,' I remarked. "'It seems that you have been working at this Kennington case, "'and working pretty actively, I imagine, "'whereas I supposed that your entire attention "'was taken up by the Blackmore affair.' "'It doesn't do,' he replied, "'to allow one's entire attention "'to be taken up by any one case. "'I have half a dozen others, minor cases mostly, "'to which I am attending at this moment. "'Did you think I was proposing "'to keep you under lock and key indefinitely?' well no but i thought the kennington case would have to wait its turn and i had no idea that you were in possession of enough facts to enable you to get any farther with it but you knew all the very striking facts of the case and you saw the further evidence that we extracted from the empty house do you mean those things that we picked out from the rubbish under the grate yes you saw those curious little pieces of reed and the pair of spectacles they are lying in the top drawer of that cabinet at this moment, and I should recommend you to have another look at them. To me, they are most instructive. The pieces of reed offered an extremely valuable suggestion, and the spectacles enabled me to test that suggestion and turn it into actual information. Unfortunately, said I, the pieces of reed convey nothing to me. I don't know what they are or of what they have formed a part. I think, he replied, THAT IF YOU EXAMINE THEM WITH DUE CONSIDERATION, YOU WILL FIND THEIR USE PRETTY OBVIOUS. HAVE A GOOD LOOK AT THEM, AND THE SPECTACLES, TOO. THINK OVER ALL THAT YOU KNOW OF THAT MYSTERIOUS GROUP OF PEOPLE WHO LIVED IN THAT HOUSE, AND SEE IF YOU CANNOT FORM SOME COHERENT THEORY OF THEIR ACTIONS. THINK ALSO, IF WE HAVE NOT SOME INFORMATION IN OUR POSSESSION, BY WHICH WE MIGHT BE ABLE TO IDENTIFY SOME OF THEM, AND INFER THE IDENTITY OF THE OTHERS. YOU WILL HAVE A QUIET DAY, AS I SHALL NOT BE HOME UNTIL THE EVENING. Set yourself this task. I assure you that you have the material for identifying, or rather for testing the identity of, at least one of those persons. Go over your material systematically, and let me know in the evening what further investigations you would propose. Very well, said I. It shall be done according to your word. I will addle my brain afresh with the affair of Mr. Vice and his patient, and let the Blackmore case rip." There is no need to do that. You have a whole day before you. An hour's really close consideration of the Kennington case ought to show you what your next move should be, and then you could devote yourself to the consideration of Geoffrey Blackmore's will. With this final piece of advice, Thorndyke collected the papers for his day's work, and, having deposited them in his brief bag, took his departure, leaving me to my meditations. End of chapter 12 Recording by Rosie.